Well, let me give you a little bit of context and background to this passage to start us off. Uh, Jesus is just, when it says um, leaving that place, Jesus has just been spending a bit of time in conversation with his disciples and before that with some Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees have been arguing over the practices of Jesus and his disciples and claiming that they're, they're making themselves unclean according to the traditions of the elders. And the general summary of the whole situation is that despite their covenant background, despite the blessings of being the Old Testament people of God, having the scriptures, having God's revelation, they are not receiving the promised Messiah as he stands in front of them, the promised king they've been waiting for. In fact, they're rejecting him. They're not putting their faith in him. And then you've got the disciples who are a little bit confused by this because many people in those days would look to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and think, well, these are, these are, the, these are the guys who are getting it right. You know, I want my children to grow up to be like these people right here. And so the disciples turn around and say, Jesus, do you, what's going on? Do you not realize you just offended the Pharisees? Uh, and they're confused about this. So Jesus tells them a little parable about the blind leading the blind and said, be careful. It's not about, and he gives him a little lesson on what's clean and unclean, saying it's more about a matter of the heart than it is about external practices. So you've basically got Pharisees who are doing all this religious stuff but rejecting Jesus, and then you've got the disciples who have, so they've had the covenant blessings, but the, the disciples have actually been in the presence of the Son of God and yet are still, according to Jesus, dull in their faith. They're slow to believe. They're arguing about what's clean and what's unclean. So what does Jesus do next? We're about two years into Jesus' three-year ministry at this point. And this is one of the only times, in fact, some would argue it is the only time, he strays out of, not strays, he goes purposefully out of Israel to Gentile territory to teach them a very, very important lesson. It's like he's taking them away on a little pastor's retreat, actually. They grab their passports, pack the rucksacks, hike into the neighboring country. Mark tells us, Mark gives an account of the same story, practically word for word, apart from a couple of little details. And he tells us that they entered into a house and didn't want anyone to know it. Now, why? Is Jesus just wanting a rest? Don't know. Maybe he did retreat to pray at times. Or is he wanting to train his disciples? I think he's really trying to teach his disciples something. But he couldn't stay hidden for long. And this Canaanite woman, this woman comes and finds them and cries out for help. And in this little scenario, we see a couple of key lessons for the disciples and for us. And let me map out uh, for you where we're going with this. We've got two points this morning. First of all, there is no place for prejudicial barriers in the church. And number two, there is a place for anyone who cries out in faith. So number one, looking at verses 21 to 23, no place for prejudicial barriers in the church. Look with me at verse 22, first of all. Here we have a needy person coming to Jesus for help. A Canaanite woman came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now, that is a heartbreaking story to start with, isn't it? Two things in that verse are painful to hear. One, a little girl is suffering. 
The word for daughter in the Greek text is diminutive. This is a little girl. She's young. And secondly, she has a desperate mum whose concern is off the scale. Uh, No doubt she'd love to change places with her daughter, but she feels utterly helpless. No doubt she's tried all sorts of things before now, but now she's coming to Jesus. But she's in a terrible situation, this little girl, and the situation actually shows us that fallen angels have no conscience whatsoever. In human warfare, international laws seek to prevent the weak and the defenseless from being tyrannized or mistreated. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, to Satan's hordes, there's no such thing as wartime etiquette. That their victim is a little girl makes no difference. So mum's in desperate need. She comes to Jesus for help. That's the right move, isn't it? Matthew's account of the life of Jesus has shown us that people in need find what they need in Jesus. Jesus cares. Uh, Jesus is compassionate. Uh, Jesus is powerful. He's powerful to change people's circumstances. He healed many people. We even saw that in verses uh, 29 to 31. He is doing what Isaiah promised that he would do. We would see the lame walk, etc. But in this text, we find something surprising. Something that you might think of intensif- might have just intensified her heartbreak. You see, her desperate attempts to secure the help of Jesus are actually met, first of all, with silence. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. Actually, it's a little worse than that. From what the disciples say, it seems like Jesus has given her the cold shoulder a few times. She keeps on crying out for help. Yet she did not answer a word. Now, why would Jesus not answer a woman in desperate need? You have to ask that question. Think about it for yourself. From what you know of Jesus, what would you say? Why do you think he would do this? And do you think his behavior here is consistent with what you see in the rest of the gospel? If not, how do you explain this? Well, you might say, well, maybe he's tired and just needs to be left alone. Well, we know better than that, don't we? Again and again, we see in the four gospel accounts that Jesus gladly forfeited his rest in order to help or serve others. Maybe he's lacking compassion, we would say. Well, we know better than that, don't we? Even in verse 32 down the page, we see him with having compassion on 4,000 plus people who are Gentiles, non-Jews. He has compassion on them in their situation, and he feeds them. Well, maybe you say, well, it's because he's in Gentile territory. Well, it can't be that because of the reason I've just said for the 4,000. They were Gentiles too. He fed them in exactly the same way that he fed the 5,000 people who were Jews earlier in Matthew. Now, some would even go as far to suggest that Jesus does not answer her a word, And to explain it away by saying that Jesus is just being rude. Oh, really? The sinless one is sinning? It can't be that. There must be something else going on. Well, from the way the passage develops, it seems that there are two main reasons why Jesus does not answer her. First of all, to allow her great faith to surface. We'll come to that later. 
You, we've seen this in Matthew already. Jesus sometimes delays what's going on or how he responds in a particularly diffi- difficult situation in order to bring the scene to its, almost to its, its fullest form in a way that will help them fully understand who he is. So when we looked at Jesus walking on the water, what did we see? He knew that they were in trouble, but it took him about six hours before he decided to go out to them and, and restore the situation. Why? Well, he was allowing them to continue in their hardship and their trial so that they'll fully understand who he is. So he's delaying something in order to help them come to a fuller realization. I think he is allowing her great faith to surface. We'll get to that later. Secondly, I think to allow the disciples' prejudice to suffer. We'll deal with that just now. Look with me at verse 23b, the second part of that. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. Now, that's got to add to the heartbreak, surely. Her desperate attempts to secure the help of Jesus are considered annoying by his entourage. Annoying. So annoying, in fact, that they actively encourage Jesus to send this needy, devastated, desperate woman away. As if to say, forget about her, forget about her daughter, Lord. This woman is disturbing our pastor's retreat. Well, their lack of compassion is surely the ugliest part of this story. They must be dead inside to not care for a woman in this predicament. What is going on here? Why are they acting like this? Well, I think it's because of their prejudice against people who were not Jewish, like they were. Let me give you some background to this. The Jews believed that they were God's chosen race, okay? And they were. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 shows us that out of all the nations, God chose Israel to be his own. But it seems that over time, they misunderstood God's reason for choosing them. You see, it wasn't, God chose them, when God chose them, it wasn't to create a super clique from which everyone else would be excluded. It was to make them into a super family through whom everyone else could be included. God chose them not because they were his favorite, but so that all peoples on earth would be blessed through them. But Israel forgot that. Uh, John Stott writes, they twisted the doctrine of election into a doctrine of favoritism. And as a result, they looked on the people and nations around them, not as people to be blessed, but dogs to be avoided. They considered others who were not like them to be unclean, to the point that they not only kept their distance, they maintained an ungodly, discriminatory dislike of Gentiles. That's called prejudice. Now hold that thought and back right up to verses 21 and 22 and take another look at this woman who's introduced to us. The woman who approaches Jesus is from the region of Tyre. That's not in Israel. She's a Gentile, a non-Jew, okay? Strike one. She's from a place that's famous for producing, Mark says that she's a Syrophoenician. There's another woman in the Bible who's a Syrophoenician. Uh, Her name was Jezebel a queen in the old northern kingdom of Israel who convinced her husband, the king, to ditch God for false gods and to kill his prophets. Strike two, okay? 
And if that wasn't bad enough, Matthew in particular highlights that this woman is a Canaanite. Now, let's just say that Matthew's audience are tea drinkers. And they're all just sitting there listening to this being read out and they're taking a little sip of her tea. As soon as they hear that she's a Canaanite, the preacher just got sprayed with tea. You know, they, they strike three out. And now we start to get the picture. Now we see why the disciples asked Jesus to send her away. They're prejudiced against her and people like her. So they encourage Jesus to avoid the likes of her. And in doing so, become, can you believe it? Get this. They become a barrier to this needy woman meeting Jesus. And if there's one thing you do not want to be, it's a barrier to people meeting Jesus. Especially a barrier to people whose only hope of change, whose only hope of restoration, whose only hope of healing is to be found in Jesus. So let me ask, are there certain kinds of people that you feel prejudiced against? Because let's face it, it's not, a new, it's not an old problem. It still exists. It still exists in our society. It's prevalent in all places. A couple of months ago, Chelsea fans for, were guilty of stopping a man getting onto the train, the Paris Metro. Why? Because his skin color was different. Even the halftime adverts in the Champions League final, you can see my world revolves around football a lot. Uh, the halftime adverts in the Champions League final included a plea from the who's who of global super, football superstars saying no to racism. Prejudice exists in all sorts of ways. But it's not just based on race and skin color, there's a whole bunch of other things. And it's not just prevalent in society, it's prevalent in the church. Now we might say, well, I'm not a racist. Well, that's good. But let's face it, we discriminate in some petty ways, don't we? Don't we? I do. And I suppose we could ask the question, from what kind of person do you distinctively distance yourself? Well, we are a family of internationals as a church. I don't think we necessarily struggle with racism, but perhaps we struggle with associating with people from a different socioeconomic background. People who dress differently. People who, for whatever reason, we don't like or make much time for just because they're not really like us. And the question is not, what is it about them that stops you engaging with them? It's, what is it about you and your heart that stops you engaging them? Because the problem is not in other people, the problem is in us. It could be a couple of things. It could be a prideful heart. We always look for something that puts us in a better light, don't we? It's part of our insecurity, in a sense. We always look for something that puts us in a better light, even before God. But we forget that there is nothing in us that makes us favorable in, in his sight. There is no one righteous, not even one. Even all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So why do we struggle to accept that I'm no better than you? And you're no better than me? 
Well, either it's pride or it's theological error. I mean, maybe, maybe our actions of petty discrimination even point out that deep down we believe that God does have favorites. And I'm it. Even though in James 2 verse 1 we read that God does not show partiality. See the error? Listen, this is vitally important in the life of a local church. People who come to church are needy people, aren't we? We all are. All who believe in Jesus still struggle with things like suffering and hardship and with sin. And God has made it so that our gathering together is a means of collective encouragement, of building up and of strengthening faith. Now imagine being a barrier in the church. Imagine being a barrier to someone being built up because of our petty discrimination. That happens. I used to pastor a church in St. Andrews before moving to Charlotte. And uh, we as a church, I think, learned a great lesson together when um, a man called David Kirby started coming to our services. Um, David looked like a tramp. It was altogether confusing when he walked in because he walked in with a, with a Franciscan nun. It was a very strange day. Uh, this, the Franciscan nun's another story. Let me just deal with David. <laughs> David, I mean, David, had a, David wasn't homeless. He had a flat, but... If you were to choose one word to describe him, it would be tramp. Um, His clothes were dirty. His hair was unwashed. His beard was massively out of control and contained various foodstuffs. Um, It was was fairly yellow. In fact, I mean, his beard was so out of control, apart from this little bit on the right-hand side that had been singed away by his cigarettes. His trousers always looked like they were about to fall down. He had clearly just missed too many loops when he was putting them on in the morning. Now, at first, people, start, people kept their distance. People treated him differently. There is no doubt about it. One or two of our godly brothers and sisters in the church as well admitted later to questioning whether or not he was really a Christian because Christians just aren't that messy. But basically what had happened was they put up a barrier to him knowing the beauty of belonging to a church family and finding help. He was there every week, but he was not welcomed by all. It was really sad. He believed in Jesus. He was a real thinker. He was a great man. He used to be a professor in history, medieval history. Um, I mean, you ask him how the Vikings and the Celts interacted. You know, wow, he could spend ages. He did, telling you all about it. But he suffered. He suffered an immense breakdown. And he really struggled. And he found that week in, week out, gathering together with the people in the church was one of the things. It was a... Theologically, he knew this is a means of grace. I refuse to miss it. I refuse. And he would often be sad, but strengthened by God's word and by God's people. He 
he needed to worship God with God's people and to hear from God's, God's words because it helped him cling to Jesus. Imagine, imagine because of petty discrimination, even on account of lower socioeconomic class, being a barrier to David being strengthened by Jesus. Imagine. Pastors are not supposed to have their favorites, and it's a bit ironic given the text, but he was my favorite baptism. I still remember the time that he came up out of that water. And most people, when they come up out of the water, you know, we're rather discreet and British. Oh, thank you very much. I'm baptized now. I'm just going to get my towel and uh, dry off, and I'll come and shake your hand afterwards. David came out of that water, and it was just like, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! It was beautiful. But imagine becoming a barrier to a man like that. It is vital that we put aside petty discrimination, even serious discrimination. It's sinful and we need to repent of it. We cannot put barriers in the way of people coming to find Jesus in their time of needs. Of course, it's not only vital in relation to relationship to our life together as a church, it's vitally important to our mission to make disciples. God's goal is the global spread of the gospel, right? You'll be my witnesses, Jesus said to his disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We learned about this recently in Acts 10 in our evening services, where God sent Peter to a Gentile house to reinforce this very truth that God is indiscriminate in his offer of grace. It's for everybody, everywhere. And Peter, of course, arrives at Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, unclean. Strike one. And he says, You're, what a way to walk into someone's house. You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Nice to meet you too, Peter. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I think that's exactly what Jesus is starting to teach these guys on retreat this, at this stage in his ministry. It would take a while to get there. It would take death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit coming, and a big sheet being lowered down for Peter to say, call nothing or no one unclean. Do not discriminate. And when Peter hears what God has done in Cornelius' heart, he marvels, saying, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. God is indiscriminate in his offer of grace. Therefore, so should we be indiscriminate in preaching that grace. We should ensure that we put no barriers in the way of people who need to meet him. There is no place for prejudicial barriers in the church. Now let's move on to the second reason why Jesus doesn't say a word to her. He's not only showing his disciples this, he's showing the disciples the strength of her faith to show that there is a place for anyone who cries out to faith, cries out in faith to Jesus. Even a Tyro, uh, a, where is she from? Syrophoenician Canaanite from Tyre. Look with me, verses 24 to 25. 
Second reason why Jesus didn't say a word. The first reason to draw out his disciples' prejudice. The second, to draw out her faith. The disciples say, send her away, but Jesus doesn't. But another surprise comes. He doesn't say, welcome, your daughter is healed. He says one or two more surprising things. Verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Wow. What does that mean? Some have said, well, that sounds painfully close to the prejudice of his disciples. But we know Jesus better than that. He's not talking about preference here. He's not talking about favoritism. He's talking about stages. Stages in God's saving plan. So it is true that Jesus was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. There were, but there is a time when the Gentiles would be reached. That would be through his apostles, post his death and resurrection. There are two reasons why Jesus is sent in particular to the, to the lost sheep of Israel, to God's original chosen people. One, they are lost. God's chosen nation, Israel, had rebelled in lots of different ways. He had sent a succession of prophets to call them to repent, and now he's sending his son. Secondly, in his ministry to lost sheep, it is this ministry to lost sheep that will ultimately take him to the place where he must go, the cross. So there's reason in it. But although Jesus is sent only to the house of Israel, his plan is for his church, bought with his blood, filled with the Spirit to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We read from Isaiah 49. Jesus knew Isaiah inside out. These verses wouldn't have been a surprise to him. It's too small a thing for you. He's talking about my servant. It's Jesus. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, that's Israel, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's why. The second thing he says is in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. (laughs) What does that mean? That sounds painfully close to the prejudice of his disciples. Is he calling her a dog? That is not going to go down well. Well, let me say this. It's, it's, what, what is it when he's talking about a dog here? I mean, it's, it's certainly not one of these, uh, strange colloquialisms cultural colloquialisms where you kind of take an, a word with a negative connotation and use it in a positive way, you know, like Americans do. You dog, you know. I still remember the time I was reading, I think I was in the office with the apprentices and uh, we were reading through a chapter of a book and there must have been something theologically wonderful that one of our apprentices just went, that was sick. And I was like, please don't. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Well, that's wicked. What's that all about? Stop that. Let words remain true to their meaning, please. It's not that. He's not saying dog. Jesus isn't trying to be cute, but he's not being rude either. He may well, actually, he may, we're not quite sure, he may well be intentional in picking up the languages of the disciples here, but he is simply offering a one-sentence parable. It's an illustration He uses a little parable to point out not preference, but priority. The very thing he's just highlighted by saying that he was the one who was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He's trying to plot out for this woman where she currently is in God's unfolding plan. And again, it's to tease out the greatness of this woman's faith. So understanding the characters in the parable will help you. The children, of course, are Israel. Um, 
They have priority. The dogs are Gentiles. It's not an offensive term. Matthew's not even using the same word that's used by the Jews in the original languages. It's a different kind of dog. It's, it's not the wild, unclean scavenger that can make you unclean. It's the kind of guard doggy little dog. It's, again, it's the word that's used for dog here is in the diminutive. So it's a little dog. It's like a Yorkie. And then the bread here is the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's Christ himself who said, I am the bread of life. And what Jesus is saying is, look, the children will eat first. Now, we have a few dog lovers in church. No matter how much you love your dog, I'm sure you don't feed them before you feed your children. It's priority, right? Please tell me you don't feed your dog before your children. But now look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Look at the response that he has, he has just drawn out from this woman. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That is amazing what she says. Sure, I understand your priority, Jesus, as the Lord, the son of David. In other words, Jewish Messiah. She gets it. That's how she addresses him at the start. I get where we're at. Your priority is to feed the children first. I'm the dog in the analogy, but don't the blessings that the children receive in your ministry right now fall from the table that they eat at so that even we, the gentle dogs, can eat something and be satisfied right now? Yes. She gets it. She gets it. And she's even she's saying something even more amazing than the fact that she gets it. She's saying, even the you're feeding your, your disciples with everything. You're pouring out everything in your ministry to Israel. Great. Praise God. But even the crummiest blessing from you is more than enough to satisfy me. That's great faith. Great faith. So Jesus like he did with his disciples in the boat, delaying so that, they come, so that the full picture emerges. He delays and responds and interacts with this woman so that the full picture emerges of her beautiful faith, beautiful faith to commend her to, her, to these disciples whose jaws, I'm sure, were on the floor. Woman, you have great faith. Jesus only said that to two people. In Matthew's gospel, both Gentiles, non-Jews, a centurion and this woman. She gets it. While Pharisees who know all the blessings of being part of the children of Israel reject their Messiah, she gets it. That's why it's great faith. While the disciples, having spent two years hearing him preach and watching Jesus heal, are still dull in their faith, she gets it. That's why it's great faith. She expresses a clear, unambiguous understanding of who Jesus is, the priority of his mission, the unfolding of God's salvation plan, and her exactly where they are in the middle of that. And she approaches him and asks for help, trusting that even the crummiest, tiniest little bit of blessing is enough for her. That is great faith. To believe what God has said is true. To approach him on the basis of that truth, trusting that he is gracious and compassionate and merciful and will grant that according to his goodness and his compassion. That is great faith. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. 
I want to encourage you to let this woman be a model to you. If you're thinking about Christianity, she's, she's ticking the boxes. She knows who he is and she knows who she is. She knows who he is. She calls him Lord twice. And the Bible just does teach us that Lord is a word that refers to God as being the ruler over all things. He is the one who has created all things, the one who sustains all things. We owe our existence to him. Uh, we were created to live for him. He's given us his good word to live by. But we choose to disobey him and disregard his authority when we choose to live our own way and live our lives in complete, well, ignorance of who he is. Now, some say to that, well, I prefer to live by my own rules. And I'm, well, I'm, I just, I want to encourage you to see that that doesn't work. And I had the perfect illustration of that the other night at Tesco. I was at Tesco and a man walked into the store at the same time that I did and having just parked in a disabled bay. And a man and woman came in immediately behind him and the man said, I don't see a blue disabled badge on your car, sir, to which the man who was walking in with me, uh, I didn't know him, said, mind your own business. I thought that was rude. Now, the woman who came in with the other man said, well, sir, in my position, it is my business. And she flashed her police warrant card. <laughs> Aha, like that. You blue badge offender. Oh, I'll only be a minute, he said. To which the police officer replied, no, you won't. Uh, you'll move it now. And it's advisable not to disregard those who have authority to take your car away. I like that. <laughs> now, you really don't want to say mind your own business to someone who actually has the authority to intervene in your business, do you? Well, that's what we do with God when we reject him. That's what we do with God when we choose to live our own way rather than live according to his good words and know all the blessings that he wants to pour out in our lives. We don't get away with it. He's Lord of all, whether you acknowledge him or not. The Bible teaches that we either acknowledge him in this life as our Savior and Lord or acknowledge him after death in judgment. And the single determining factor which changes our stance before him is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in his death on the cross where he died to pay the penalty for all of our transgressions and sins and rose again to life three days later to show us God is a compassionate, forgiving, and merciful God. He's Lord. She knows who he is. I encourage you to know who he is too. Not only does she know who she is, she knows who... I can't figure out my tenses. She knows who she is. She are. She is. You know what I mean. She knows she's a sinner. This woman does not come with any sense of entitlement here, does she? She's not coming depending on her own works or things that she has done in her life to present for the Lord. She knows that she's a sinner deserving of judgment. That's why she cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And mercy is what you get. It's when you don't get what you deserve. And my encouragement for you in reckon, is if you don't know Jesus, is to come to him knowing who he is, knowing who you are. He's Lord of all, who's loved you so much, he's given his son to die for you. And you are that sinner who needs to come to him as a needy, in recognition of your need, 
and cry out for mercy. Would you do that? You can do it in a prayer right now. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that this is where people are at. There are lots of needy people out there. I'm sure this woman spent lots of time seeking help in all sorts of other places. People in our city do that too. People who live in our homes or down our street do that too. My encouragement for each of us today is to help them see with great, great clarity, even through passages like this, that there is a place in God's kingdom at his eternal table in heaven for anyone who cries out in faith. And please pray with me for us together that there would be no place for prejudicial barriers in our hearts. Let's never, ever, ever be a barrier to people coming to Jesus. Let's pray.